0: This is available as a podcast and a webinar. Yay!
1: This conference will now be... All right. good afternoon, and welcome to our annual session on evictions. I, I do say annual. I think the last couple of years we did more than one, uh, but this is, this is going to count for our annual session on evictions. Uh, we have two people that you're really familiar with, uh, and, um, Judge, of course, Judge Anna Huberman, uh, who is our presiding justice of the peace from Country Meadows Justice Court. Uh, Judge Gerald Williams from North Valley Justice Court. They both presented for us n- on numerous occasions. Both incredible experts in the field. Uh, and with that being said, I will turn it over to them. Uh, again, remember, uh, if, if please mute yourself unless you're asking a question. You can leave your cameras on or off. And you can put, you can turn your microphone on and your camera on if you want to ask a question or put it in the chat box. Thank you.
2: All right, thank you, Charles, and uh, thank you all. Um, I I would like to actually encourage everyone to participate. Um, There are some parts of the presentation that are to be interactive. you know i was thinking about this today that um i i used to you know like that 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 presentations like this were dynamic uh before the pandemic and there was you know participation um and then we moved to virtual and sometimes it feels like it makes it a little bit more comfortable to participate uh but I, I think that being able to meet like this virtually is good. We don't have to travel. Um, it, it it allows this to be recorded and I know that lots and lots of, of judges and pro tems do uh, listen to these recordings if they're not able to attend. Uh, so I think that that's a great tool to have, but um, I, I sometimes I'm just a little bit sorry to lose some of that participation. So I'm just encouraging everyone to do so. Um, so this was called uh, the class as uh, post-pandemic. I guess we're all still pretending that the pandemic is over. Um, I know that our numbers have been going up. We've had lots of uh, court clerks and 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 folks in the courts that are still getting COVID. Fortunately, it appears that most people are vaccinated and they aren't serious. But it's still out there it's still around Um, but um, the first part of this presentation will have to do with things that relate to changes that occurred during or now after the pandemic so those of you who've been around long enough uh, might remember that prior to 2016 there was no Change of judge as a matter of right and evictions at all. It it was never contemplated as part of the rules and 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 it it didn't happen. But there was a rule change in 2016 that did allow either side to request uh, a change of judge uh, as a matter of right without having to give a reason why they were asking for that change. Um, when the pandemic came and a lot of the the court rules and things were changing at first we were just postponing cases uh and excluding time but at some point um the the change of judge as a matter of right was suspended uh you'll see that little the footnote there that the actual original administrative order that suspended changes of judge as a matter of right forgot to include uh evictions but those were then added in the in the following order and from May 20th of 2020 through April 1st of 22 we there was no change of judge Uh, but this is now a big change for uh, those who have never lived through this time of the change of judge Uh, these are now allowed the the challenge has to be used before any ruling is made on the case. To be honest, the the attorneys who who file these notices, they know what court they they're filing their cases in, and they usually will file the case together with the notice. Uh, but if you get a defense attorney or someone who appears or a pro per who might know the rules, just be sure that that they can only uh, exercise this right if a ruling has not been made on the case now because of the nature of eviction cases when this rule change started in 2016 Maricopa County came up with a process to be able to assign eviction cases without going through the normal transfer process because the normal transfer process requires the, the courts to, to fill out a transfer form, send it to the presiding judge. The presiding judge then has to reassign the case, sign the order, send it back to the court. And because of the timelines in, in evictions, this was not a good uh, process for us to uh, to use. So uh, the, the courts did approve a policy, which includes a matrix for how these cases are sent uh to to the courts they're usually kept within the 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 regional center so that makes it easy for the litigants that could go right then that same day to their next court without having to travel um but they they change as to which judge gets it uh next so that uh so that they can't game the system, knowing that all cases from Judge A are gonna to go to Judge B. Because sometimes the cases will go to Judge B, sometimes to C, sometimes to D, and the party who's exercising the change of judge would not necessarily know who it's going to. So, because our hearings are normally now virtual, I find it really difficult that you would actually get these in court that someone would say, I'm you know, noticing the judge, uh, but if you do, or if you happen to see a notice in the file, uh, don't do anything on the case. Stop every anything. You, you're not to touch that case again, and just give it to the managers, and the managers
0: uh, will know who to send the case to. Um, I'm going to move on to the next topic, unless anyone has any questions on that.
2: So, as we all know, in the jurisdictional limits. Um, that justice of the peace, uh, well, it says here 22201 has the jurisdiction, uh, conferred on them by law and they have exclusive jurisdiction on all civil actions, original jurisdiction, all civil actions, uh, where the amount uh, is less than $10,000. Um, so the same applies for evictions when the amount is less than $10,000 exclusive of interest costs and attorney's fees. Uh, again, I, I did put a footnote here just as a reminder that late fees are not the same as interest. So late fees are included in that $10,000 limit. So you can't have the 10,000 plus and another $300 in late fees. That is included in the $10,000. Uh, utilities any other damages all of that is part of the $10,000 the only thing you could exclude would be interest but because in evictions we don't see prejudgment interest that is not something that would concern you and then the court costs and attorneys fees those would be excluded for some reason most of the law firms I've seen limit at nine thousand nine hundred ninety nine dollars and ninety nine cents which makes no sense because the law does say $10,000 or less. So what you should probably be seeing is $10,000 plus whatever the amount of court costs and attorneys fees is. So during the pandemic, we did see that because some there were several cases where the, the amount of unpaid rent went on for several months, we did see cases where the complaints did go over the $10,000. Um, so when you get a complaint that's over $10,000, those cases have to be transferred to the superior court. So the justice court cannot hear that case. But if the plaintiff chooses, they can waive whatever claim they have over the $10,000 and then you could keep it in the justice court. Um, which is obviously the ones we saw because the ones that went to superior court, we didn't have, didn't see and so the
0: question then becomes what happens to the amount that they waived so if the if the
2: case comes to you today June 16th and rent through June with all the past due rent is let's say eleven thousand dollars and the plaintiff says we'll reduce it to ten thousand to keep it in justice court
0: What happens to that $1,000 that they are waiving? Any suggestions? So
2: that amount is permanently waived. This is not that they are just reducing an amount so they can keep the case in justice court and then continue with make that claim if they want to claim that amount they have to go to the superior court if not whatever amount they're waiving becomes permanently waived Um, obviously during the pandemic those administrative orders that we had on evictions uh, did have a requirement that uh, that they had to let us know if there had been other judgments Um, and the idea was that we would be able to know if those amounts were the same months in the previous judgment as in this one to know if they were trying to claim an amount that had been waived in a previous judgment we no longer have those rules they no longer have to tell us that i think that's just something that you need to be aware of and know um if you hear a tenant say something you know about that you know last year when we were in the pandemic and you know they, they brought me to court and i got help from rental assistance you know maybe those are things that you might want to inquire a little about you know what was in those judgments and if any amounts of those judgments had actually been been waived
1: and so, would you recommend to judges that they explain that? I say if they're going to weigh if the if the, uh, if the claim was higher, they wanted to keep it in um, justice courts. You recommend well, the
0: that explain
2: that. If the claim is higher than ten thousand, the the justice courts can't hear it. We don't have the the authority to hear it. So right, they can I'm be talking. given they can be given the option to reduce it at that point. Uh, but with the understanding that whatever amount they're reducing, they can never claim in the future.
3: Okay, okay. that's the question,
2: thank you. Right, and then the other question is, let's say it's today, we're June 16th, and the the, the amount again is over, the, it's $11,000. Can the landlord just say, okay, they just include May rent in the judgment, let's not include June, and then I'm gonna file another case to include June. So again, I would suggest the answer to that is no, because the amount that's waived is waived permanently because this is a jurisdictional issue. They, they are under no obligation to waive it. They can here have the claim for the full amount, but they just have to do it in Superior Court. So if they want to keep it in Justice Court because it's cheaper or faster or for whatever reasons, then that is an amount that they are waiving permanently. So they cannot ask to include less things and then bring it in for a later claim. Uh, I would suspect that if anyone would see these issues, it would probably be our hearing officers, or I'm sure there's courts out there that the judges or the pro tems themselves do the small claims. Um, that these things might be brought forward in the small claims uh, amounts that they were not able to include in, in a. In a judgment. And again, those are things that you'll have to
0: consider if they were waived at the time and they should not be allowed. Any questions as to that before we move on?
3: I don't have a question, but I, I have something to add. This, this is a good time, I guess, if any, to talk about a judgment for non payment of rent includes all rent that is due on the date the judgment is signed. Is, is, is perhaps the easiest way to, to think of that. Um, this sometimes produces uh, results that seem unfair because if you're at, if, you're towards, if the case is filed at the end of the month and spills into the next month, then the landlord is going to request rent for the following month, even though it's the first or the second day of the month. And obviously the tenant can be forced out through the writ of restitution process well before that month is up. But that doesn't change that the amount of the rent is due and therefore it should be awarded. Otherwise, you're signing a judgment saying rent is not due uh, or or say it's a, a case was filed in May. It fills into June. You sign the judgment in June. It has the same effect of the waiver that Judge Huberman was just talking about. You're saying that there's no rent due for June. So if the the ju- if the eviction is based on non-payment of rent, um, the judgment has to include all the rent that is due, even if it spills into the next month.
2: And, and, and the pushback that you will get is that they will tell you um, that they don't have to pay until the 3rd, right? Because, for example, late fees don't accrue until the 5th or the 4th, and so they'll tell you, but today's the 1st. I have until the third, and that is not the case. I mean, you would have to go back and look at the lease, obviously, but most leases will say that rent is due on the first. And at that point, it doesn't matter that the late fees wouldn't accrue until after the third. Those late fees that that rent became due on the first, especially because the prior month's rent had not been paid and that rent you know, is included in the judgment. I, I, there's a question someone has yeah. a
4: microphone yeah this is this is ken chevron so and this is my challenge is i see that the late fees are going to be but if the the rent is due on the first and it's still before five o'clock how can they ask for that month without verification i mean that you don't know that they're not going to pay because it's not due until at least at the end of the. <laughs> they have at least until the end of the day
2: no, because it's no. They they had until the time that the judgment was signed.
4: No, I'm talking about when they when they do a judge when they bring an eviction action in front of your court on Jan, on say January 1st or let's say June 1st. They're asking for both May and June, which they have the right. But on Jan, on June 1st, they it it has not. They do not owe it until the end of the day. I mean, if you look at it. And the second, you're right. They owed it, but they owe they, it's owed by the first. But they're asking for the whole month on the first.
2: Only because the previous month has not been paid.
4: I understand that. So you owe for the so last. So it, it
2: became it became. You can't just pay June and not pay May. And so there's no way that you can give them the opportunity to pay June if they haven't paid May. So once you're getting the judgment for non-payment of rent in May, you have to include June because they can't pay June without paying May.
4: So what about for I the,
2: think, but was that because- Yeah, I, do, I, understand,
4: I understand your reasoning and I, and I, I get that. Um, but then they're also asking for not just the rent, but also for the utilities and other items, which has not accrued yet.
2: Well, they can't ask for anything that hasn't accrued. They can't ask for future utilities, they can only, they can only ask for whatever their lease allows them to ask for. So that,
4: that you can, you know, a lot of times the utilities are that. month late. Yeah. A lot of times the, the, the utilities are month late. So I get that, you know, of course I give that because it shows it's for the prior month, um, that they're paying, but sometimes when it's a pre, um, a certain amount like 50, you know, $100 for this $50 for that. And it's the same every month that hasn't accrued yet.
2: Well, that does also becomes part of rent. I, I i will I will add something to this, but I will say that the challenge
4: but if, if they differentiate it, I agree with you if it's on part of the rent, but if they differentiate it on the judgment itself is not part of rent but as part of the breakdown, how does that be, how is that affected? i
2: i I mean, I think that if the lease provides that those have to be prepaid on the first, they became due on the first, just like rent. And if the lease does, if, if what they're charging is something that's already been used and it gets uh, billed later, then then it, it's something that happened prior. So I think that either way, it's covered. I think the bigger challenge that we always have with these cases is if they are ready to pay the rent and they come to court and they say, "Here I have May's rent," and they don't have June's rent. And because June became available, and then they're like, oh, but June, I didn't have to pay it. That is where it may become a little more challenging. Um, But because June became due at the time that it became the first, uh, in truth, if they want to stop that judgment by paying it off, they have to pay the full amount.
4: Yeah, that's logical. And that does happen. Sometimes I say I can pay for it. Both, they'll say is I can pay for June, but I don't have the money for May. Right. Obviously they could pay, but maybe not all of the court costs.
2: Right. It's, uh, I think that, that, I mean, it's always you know, no one likes to sign judgments on the first of the month. But it, it, it is you know, it is it, it, works. I will I, I do want to clarify just so everyone understands that Landlords cannot charge two people for rent for the same property. So, if the tenant moved out, you know, if you 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 award judgment on the first and the writ of, of restitution, you know, can issue on the sixth, and they move out. If that landlord re-rents the property which I I would suggest that in today's market, those properties are turning around very, very quickly. Unless the tenant left the property really trashed uh, and and the landlord has to do too much work to re-rent it, uh, those units are probably renting out within the following week. Um, And so the rent can only accrue through the day that they re-rent it to someone else. So even if the judgment included the full month of June, if they re-rent that property on the 15th, that tenant would only be liable, but it's up to the landlord to only charge him for that amount. Um,
4: And I thought that the law said, or at least the court had ruled that it is the tenant's obligation to prove that it has not been rented, not the landlord's.
2: Well, the landlord has the duty of due diligence to rent it also. so so they have to show that they have that they didn't just sit back and say i'm just going to charge it to this guy and i'm going to go on vacation uh they have a you know back in 2012 um when when I guess 2013 when i when i first started properties could remain empty for months, months and tenants were many times liable for many many months of rent, they moved out uh, before their lease was over. That doesn't happen today. Those properties are rented very quickly. I'm just bringing this up because it's something that I sometimes tell the tenants. Because a lot of times they'll be like, "Well, I'm not going to hurry and move out if you're going to charge me for the full month anyways." Um, but sometimes, you know, I'll tell them, "Look, if they rent it out quicker, then they then you don't get charged for that full amount." Just something to know. Thank you. So as to issues with rental assistance, again, uh, there was a time where uh, one of the iterations of administrative orders that we were under required us to not proceed to judgment in cases where the tenant uh, indicated that they had applied for rental assistance or they approved for rental assistance. I mean we went through different variations of this Um, but when they said that they had they were getting rental assistance we would stop the cases and I think in September of last year is when that all went away and we are no longer under any obligation to delay any case because the tenant claims uh, that they have applied for receiving rental assistance But today, still, it happens, it's very common that they will come to court and tell us that um, they've been approved for rental assistance and the landlord signed all the papers and they know the rent's going to be paid because they already told them that the rent is coming. Um,
0: And, of course, they, they come into court expecting that you not sign the judgment. Any thoughts on this? I'm sorry, Anna, can you say that again? Because I, I think I understood it, but I'm not
2: quite sure I did. So so the tenant comes to court. They've been they've they've received an eviction notice and they come to court and they tell you um, I've been in contact with, you know, whatever, um, whatever agency, the cap office, and they approve me and they're gonna pay the two months that I owe, and they're gonna give me three more months of rent.
0: Uh, I've already been approved. So, what do we do? If they can't pay the amount, then a judgment is issued. Right.
2: I mean, I always make a show (laughs) of telling the tenant that if the landlord agrees, we can wait for that payment to arrive. And then you know the landlord attorney will always say i don't have the authority to postpone it my client wants a judgment if the money comes um they will surely accept it and you'll be able to stay that's usually what happens um but you have to tell them unfortunately there's nothing right now there's no order that allows us to not sign a judgment um even though we know the money's coming even we know the rental assistance if the rent has not been paid by the time the judgment is signed there's nothing that um that 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 would allow the judge not to sign the judgment um and it's true that the landlords know because they're also informed when the rent is the check is coming and they had to participate they have to sign the forms and everything for the the tenant to get the rental assistance but unfortunately that doesn't stop us from uh from signing the judgment it's, it's an unfortunate situation uh but that's just uh that's just the way that things are set up this was a case uh, that 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 happened in my court that um the tenant had been approved for rental assistance and they were told that all of the back rent that was going to be paid everything they owed to the day was going to be paid and that they would also be paying three months going forward. So the tenant expected um, in, in this example, March, April, and May rent to be paid. So she goes in to pay June's rent, and they tell her they can't accept it because there's still a balance left over from May. So they 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 file the eviction action, the tenant comes to court and says that rent was supposed to be paid through may and that there should be no balance from may that that was all paid by rental assistance and the landlord is claiming that the three months that they paid didn't cover everything because there were additional fees that the landlord had
0: included any thoughts on this
4: yes i have that daily Luckily, I go through every ledger and I explain and I explain to them that they do have the right to still get late fees if until they get their actual checks in their hand. And it's unfortunate, but it's a reality. And the only time I will take it off if they because I don't allow the $25 or $50 for taking a notice to them, the notice fee. So those are the only things I can take off. Or if they put a $240 for legal fees in that, you know once every month after that i mean after they got their money and well, for every issue I there they should be.
2: Them. i don't think there should be any legal fees in the ledger
4: they do they put them some of but some of the landlords put a 240 dollars legal fee monthly every time they don't um that they send out a notice
2: well it's, i i i mean they can't charge them as legal fees because they can only get attorney's fees if they're a prevailing party in a lawsuit
4: no so i understand they, that but they still they put in the adding, Still well, charging I understand money. what
2: you're saying. Yeah. I'm just saying those are fees that should not be allowed because they can only get legal fees if they're the prevailing party in a lawsuit. They should not be I, getting legal fees for anything else. Um, I mean, you bring up a good point that if everyone wants to talk about what do we do about these um, about the administrative fees that they charge for notice fees. Um, I've seen notice fees that charge $25. I've seen notice fees of $50. I had
4: one yesterday for $200. Yeah, I get no pushback by taking them out anymore. You know, I explained to them, all they're doing is the job of the manager of going and telling them. And I said, that's not a fee. It is, they don't push it back. But um, when they do do the, and they really don't push back on a lot of the, I mean, again, we don't have a lot of discretion. I mean, once it has been paid by the rental assistance, whatever is before that, they get to do what they want. I mean, I can't do anything. I can't go backwards past that time. But going forward, if there are some questionable fees, because I go back and look at it, you know, and I don't get pushed back without either. They know that if I find them, that I'm gonna bring it to their attention and say, hey, what was this for? You know, why is there a $350, you know, because somebody didn't like you fee? I mean, I'm just being facetious, but and that's why it's good to me especially if they're long if it's a long if it's an eviction where there's a great amount there and you say you have a 300 hundred dollar cap and then there's really maybe two thousand dollars in late fees there even though you've given them a three three hundred dollar three hundred cap you know i take those out
3: i would be very careful uh, if there's a disputed amount then you need to set the case for a trial and let both sides present evidence on it
4: no um, I, I don't
3: do I, these if are if, just, if you're just if you're just randomly determining what you think is an appropriate amount ex parte um i'm not
4: i'm not i'm not figuring out I, what I,
3: it. I, I, I think you could be subject to criticism uh, if, so, if, if, Cheryl. If, there's, if there's an amount in dispute you need to to let both sides present evidence of it
4: Gerald, I don't do it unilaterally. I go through and say exactly what I came up with through the when I audit it. I don't have any of the lawyers disputing it yet, or disputing them because think, they know I've gone through. I go through it piece, I, by, I, piece by, by piece by piece
2: and I it's not the that problem, I'm changing. It. The problem. The problem is not when you are going to enter a judgment. And you want to go through the judgment and say, I'm not going to allow this amount, I'm not going to allow that amount. But for you to disallow a five-day notice or to disallow some other thing because you don't agree with an amount that was included in that five-day notice, that becomes another problem. So if someone charges $200 a day for late fees and they send someone a five-day notice saying, you didn't pay $1,000 in rent, and two thousand dollars in late fees you need to pay three thousand dollars or i'm going to file this action they have a right to do that because that is what the lease agreement allows them to do which is not the same as when you're going to sign the judgment to say okay i'm going to knock down these two thousand dollars in late fees i find this unconscionable but what you can't do is say that that five day notice wasn't valid because you didn't like those fees in there. That five-day notice was valid because it was according to the lease that was in effect at the time.
4: Okay, so I, I know that we each do we each our think eviction
2: That's what Judge Williams is saying.
4: I understand what you're saying. I if you have know, a dispute I, to lose them
2: those need
0: to be in trial.
4: I, again, you're criticizing me for something that I have an agreement with all the lawyers. They, 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 I go over them piece by piece and let them, if they find anything that they dispute with me, and I go over the ledger piece by piece to tell them exactly what I was concerned about. If they have a concern, we then have a conversation about it and they say, this is what happened. I'm like, okay, I'm glad you brought it to my attention. But to allow so us, when you have something in your court where it says I will give a $300 cap on late fees, then I, then that, we have a discretion on that
2: i i'm not saying that you're right
4: i you know i could i could go to a trial but they're not disputing it they're not challenging me but that's
2: well because they want possession which is in the end what all they're looking for is possession. and
4: i can and they can go ahead and do a trial and have a bring 450 dollars against the tenant
2: can i I really want to move on to the the group but what i'm just telling you here is that in this example that they didn't accept june's rent because there was a balance left for may because the tenant Assume that it was all going to be paid for by rental assistance. What I'm saying is it's very dangerous for you to go back and say, I'm not going back. you shouldn't be included this. Pay. So I'm going to find that you didn't know money for May. So then June was okay. Um, and, and that, and that stops the eviction. That's all I'm saying. All right. We're going to move on. Uh, I think that uh, these are Gerald's topics now. Yeah. This is uh and this hasn't happened in a
3: while in my court, which is unusual, um, but we've had uh, a recurring problem of property managers showing up thinking that they can represent the landlord when they're just the property manager. And and this happened um, uh, a lot prior to us doing the eviction rules. It's happened a lot less since there's a clear eviction rule on it. Um, but uh, every now and then you'll still have someone come in and say, well, you're the only judge that doesn't let me do this. And you're like, well, I'm sorry. Um, I I don't know if that's true, but I I think that we're a lot more consistent now on this issue. We have had a lot more training, a lot more best practices and there's a clear rule. So um, this is the property managers coming in is not as big of a problem. Um, practice of law is designed is defined in Supreme Court rule 31 as basically, uh, representing someone in a, in a legal proceeding on their behalf. Um, rather than property managers coming in, what I've seen a lot more are adult children of the, the property of the property owner coming in. Um, sometimes the property owner, um, doesn't speak English as well as their adult children do or the adult that actually owns the property is elderly and their kids have been running anything everything anyway and so their the adult child tries to come in and and they can't do that um the the next slide uh shows who can represent um others in a in a justice court action and if it's a, a legal organization like a legal entity like an llc or a partnership an officer, partner, or a member can do that if they're authorized, um, if, that, if that representation is not their primary duty, and not if they're getting, and they can be getting paid extra for doing it. Now, on E4 of the slide, we have a new category of legal paraprofessionals. Um, I haven't seen one of these yet. I don't know if anyone else has, and I don't know if they're actually that many that are authorized to represent uh tenants and landlord tenant cases but if if these people come uh in the in the courtroom and they identify themselves as a legal fair professional they can basically do anything in your courtroom that that an attorney could do um that's the whole point there's a they're they're sanctioned and and licensed um through the state uh bar and the arizona supreme court process so if if someone comes in and says, "I'm I'm certified as a legal professional," then they can, in effect, represent someone else in court within the scope of, of whatever their certification is. The next slide is who can appear in court, and that's what the first one is. What if the owner of the house is a trust? Um, sometimes uh, it'll be a, a a trust. Sometimes people. Uh, if they've been to a recent probate is evil seminar, they'll put all of their property in a revocable living trust. Um and so it'll say the, the the plaintiff's name will be a revocable living trust or it'll be the name of a trust. In that situation the trustee um can appear in court. The second one is who can appear um on behalf of an LLC and then what if uh, the LLC is really owned by another LLC? Um, What are everyone's thoughts on on this one? We'll try to get some perhaps discussion going. I talked through the last one because I wanted to try to stay on time.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I will say though that I think that before Rule 31 changed with all the changes, I don't know that a trustee was a proper party. I wouldn't allow them before, but I think that 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 new, that that new um, definition in Rule 31 would include the trustee at this point. I think that that has been a change. And I'm wondering if that would include now the LLC, who's owner of an LLC. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not totally clear on that. Does anyone else have any thoughts?
0: There's no wrong answers here. <laughs>
1: I agree that uh, uh, before the change in the rule, that uh, that the trustee would not be able to do it. It, ha- it would have to have been an attorney.
4: In LLC, if it's a single member LLC, the owner is the individual. There is That's an entity. In any kind of interaction I've had, that person, if they're a member or if they're the, the managing member, they should have the ability to, uh, to appear
0: so the the new rule
2: 31 actually allows any entity here in court and any person who is a part of the entity can now appear in court so the the problem is when that llc the member is another llc so now you have that two part last one i had i accepted it um reluctantly but i but I, 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 mean, I guess I didn't have a basis to reject it. I would, I don't
4: know. Well, it's the same thing with the trust. Many of us have all of our assets in a trust, and we're the, you know, there's still. I mean, we are the ones who still control the trust, unless we die. And to not allow the owner of the home just because it's in a trust, because we set it up for many other, for many reasons, uh, doesn't. It seems ridiculous not to allow that per individual, especially mine's a Chevronch family trust. But i'm the owner of all of the properties 100
0: yeah, percent microphone. With, off?
3: sure with regard to an llc that is owned by another llc um, i do transactional stuff so for signatory purposes
2: the manager or the member of the llc is who can sign on behalf of the underlying llc i, I don't know how that would work with regard to this rule but it would seem that the rules authorizing members or manager of an LLC to um, act on behalf of the LLC, then it would flow that the member or manager of the LLC that owns it would be able to uh, appear. But I guess I I, I don't know no, if I want refer to you guys. I, I you know, I'm, I'm i I agree. I think it's a complicated issue. I do think that because of the the new Rule 31, and I guess everyone who hasn't read it should probably read it. Uh, I don't know if you remember Rule 31 used to be the 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 use or was it 31.3 or whichever it was that had the list of 50 exceptions uh, of who could come to court. They've done away with that rule altogether, and now it's just anyone who represents an entity can come to court. So uh, maybe with that new rule and with what you're
0: saying that would make sense and and
1: i do want to pop in here because i will get the question of uh, does a person representing that entity that they have to be specifically authorized to represent it in the proceeding um, and does that require any paperwork the rule does not require any paperwork so putting that person under oath and them testifying that they're authorized to represent it and it's not their primary duties would be sufficient
3: very good point the next is um notice and it's and i i like the who cares what font they use? I, I think there's actually there's been a lot of discussion there as to what size font and what whether things should be in bold print and what should be in a box and what should be colored and all that kind of thing. But um, just at a, a, the outset, um, I thought it was pretty much agreed upon that every eviction required a notice. Um, there's uh, At least one law firm that thinks the notice isn't required for an immediate because it can't be cured but um, at least my position is every eviction requires a notice the notices that we get the most often um, are five-day notices and there's the statutory reference and uh, notice has to be meaningful a meaningful notice has to clearly explain whatever the breach is what the tenant needs to do to fix that um, and then the consequences of of not doing it and the ways to dispute any kind of claim. Uh, The notice should also specify the timelines that a tenant has to cure the breach before an eviction action can be filed. Even though there are are free notices um, on the Supreme Court's webpage for landlords to use or discount notices that you can buy from a variety of, of places, we still from time to time get just woefully inadequate uh five-day notices files um often by self-represented uh, tenants that are or self-represented landlords i apologize but sometimes uh even from attorneys and i'm like where did you get you know and, uh, well you know i saw it online or something well that's you know i i, I maybe this works in new jersey i have no idea but but it, it doesn't work here and the next slide is an example of one of my favorite five day notices. Um, It it actually happened and it it was received in my court, obviously a couple years ago. But uh, it's, it's a a good example of uh, a a completely inadequate notice, even though um, many of us may be sympathetic to the frustration uh, that that the homeowner is trying to express. And for those of you that are on on a telephone or or, or maybe have difficulty seeing it, it it says five days notice across the top that lists um, the names of the tenants and whoever else you have moved into my home without my permission. You no longer have a lease and have done several things to break our agreement. I cannot believe that you did this to me and my family, so dirty after everything I've done for you. Um, it was someone's name would want not would not want anything to do with you after seeing what you're all about I need you to get the F out of my house um, now um, I'm not sure how you can sleep at night but it will no longer be in my house um, <laughs> uh, in, in retrospect we can all kind of maybe smile at that but this is a real very uh, you know a, a real serious uh, case with obviously some real serious problems um, I I, did, I dismissed the case because the notice was inadequate, told the landlord how to find a, a correct notice form. The, the case was refiled, but just uh, looking at this, how many things are, are are wrong or missing from this notice? Assuming it's a five-day notice for nonpayment agreement.
2: They're going to make us call on them, like school. <laughs> a date
3: but a, a, a date is one
1: yeah does uh, something like this have to be notarized
3: it no. doesn't have to be notarized um but let's just maybe start with the obvious it, it, it doesn't say how much rent is due each month and
2: it
0: mm-hmm. doesn't
3: say how much rent is currently due
2: so the notice has to be able to be cured and the tenant has to know how to cure it and there's no information about how to cure it here.
1: And could, could a landlord write it out like
3: this if they had to write information? I know there's a form, which would be best to use the form, but could they write it out as long as the proper information was there? Yes. Um now if this is a if this is a notice for unauthorized occupants, which maybe it is, um and they've got 10 days to cure that so it it wouldn't be a five-day notice it would be a 10-day notice Um, it's not directly required but it's certainly helpful if somewhere on the notice it says how the notice was delivered or served you know was it sent by mail was it sent by certified mail was it you know delivered by a property manager um that's not on here. So if the if the tenant says, well I never got this, then the the landlord has an additional hurdle. Um, and obviously the, the notice has to say how to cure it and then what the consequences are for failing to do it. But in any event that's that's one of the more unique five day notices. Does anyone have any any stories of obviously defective notices that they want to share with
2: everyone? Yeah. If if I may, you know, this reminded me, because it says here, you no longer have a lease. And this is a typical mistake that we get from tenants all the time, when they say, well, the lease expired, I don't have a lease. I mean, I had someone the other day almost try to, they didn't have to pay the rent because they didn't have a lease. And, and I'm like, well, you're still living there.
0: You didn't agree to
2: go month to month. Like you stayed there, you went month to month. I mean, it is, um, that is a very common mistake that they don't understand a lease, whether sometimes it's because it's not in writing, they believe that there's no lease. And sometimes because the written lease expired, they believe there are no lease.
3: The next slide actually has the the notice statute, um, and I think it's time for me to hand back off to Judge Huberman.
0: All
2: right, I didn't mean to jump in. If anyone had examples of bad five-day notices, because I'm sure we've all seen bad notices of every type. Um, so 331313 has to do with receiving notice. How do we know when someone has received notice? So the first thing that this statute says is if the person has actual knowledge, right? Um, this may be a factual issue for you to determine because that's the argument you're always going to get from the landlord they knew. Well, how do we know that they knew, right? Uh, the way that the statute tells us that they had actual notice is if it was delivered in hand or if it was mailed by registered or certified mail. So, if either of those two things happened, then the statute tells us yes, they had actual knowledge. But if not, if those two things did not happen, they could still have gotten notice um, because they had actual notice then that becomes an issue of fact of how do we determine um, I had a case yesterday that the notice said that it was hand delivered, and then the tenant testified that they got home and it was on the door. So they contradicted the the notice that said it was hand delivered, but then admitted that they saw it on the door. So even if you find, that it was not hand delivered as the statute says or the notice says they had actual notice because they said that on that day they
0: saw it on the door um i think that i i guess the uh, i wanted to
2: do previous um back on this topic uh i i think uh I don't know, Charles. Did you include Gerald's ruling
0: in the packet on the certified mail issue?
1: No. No.
0: No.
2: So um, the, the the bigger problem, and and I'm sure everybody has heard this pushback, is I never got the certified mail. I never received the certified mail, and. The statute actually says um, that the notice has to be, if you see the language there, if the notice is mailed by registered or certified mail, the tenant or landlord is deemed to have received such a notice on the day the notice was received or five days after the date of mailing. And this is always the confusion because, I mean, there might be an element of unfairness here, if um, if the the a notice was sent by certified mail and the person never got the notice and didn't know that their thirty day lease, you know that they were given given thirty days notice to terminate the lease, or they were being told that they needed to clean the yard uh, because there you know there was considered a material breach or something um and i mean the same thing with payment of rent but with payment of rent, you would assume that the person knows uh that that rent was due um they still have to receive the notice but um it, it, there would be more of an expectation that they would they, they would be waiting for that but the statute does not say that they have to receive it they have to have known that it was mailed. they have to have known anything just the fact that it was mailed. and this is um pushback that we get all the time and unfortunately the statute does not allow us to consider the fact that they didn't get it gerald you wanted to add something to that um
3: no i mean it it says what it says um i i'm not a big fan of certified mail because i I don't think anyone ever goes to pick it up um and everyone knows no good news comes by certified mail so (laughs) i uh even on, you know, when they do, I get a request for alternate service, I always add, I always type in a thing to send it by regular mail as well, because there's a chance that the defendant will actually get it. If it's sent by regular mail, if it's sent by certified mail, there's almost no chance the defendant will get it. It's just proof that it was mailed.
2: Yeah. and And I, and I do think that the situation has gotten a little bit worse because, you know, I think that 10 years ago we all trusted the post office. You knew that you would send, you know, somebody a check in the mail and they would get it within two or three days, and you never worried about. Uh, or, or well, we used to pay our bills by mail. You'd put in a check, and 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 you know, you you, you rested easily knowing that your phone bill had been paid. Uh, but now it seems to be more of an issue. Uh, the the mail not not arriving within time. I've actually seen five day notices not arrive within the five days Um, yet the statute gives us no leeway um, but i don't know that there's any way that we can fix it that's not through a legislative fix i have
4: a question so has anybody ever thought through uh, legislative measures to change the at least alternate service to allow for email for service by email because to me i mean i think that gerald makes a good point once you have a registered letter, nobody picks it up. And at least people keep their email much longer than they keep their addresses. Um, I mean, this is alternate service, so it's, it's just-
2: Well, right. That, that's something. Right there. There, there's an example here, if you wait a second, in this presentation where I talk about email. So if you want to wait a minute, we can talk about that. So this is an issue that just bugs me to no end, which is, where well, the tenant rents a room in the same house where the plaintiff lives. Right? And so they tell you, I posted the notice on the door, or I, you know, slipped it on the door. I know they got it because the notice was no longer on the door.
0: Or I know they got it because they went into their room last night and it was there. Um It, it, I, I just I just find that when the tenant lives in the same home as the
2: landlord, I think there is always, I mean, I personally, I always want to add that little extra level of scrutiny to these cases uh, to make sure that, that it was actually served and properly because it does become an issue. And
0: I think where the bigger issue comes is they send it by certified mail and they mail it to the house where they both live. And now that the post office doesn't necessarily even collect a signature on that green card,
2: um, the landlord themselves could have picked up that certified mail and said that
0: it was it was served at the house. And how do we know? Um, any thoughts on this? i you know i i i don't get tons and tons of these cases but i get them and
2: i have a feeling that we're going to be seeing these more often you know people who are looking for cheaper places to live and people who are probably looking to make some extra income are going to start renting out that
0: spare bedroom and i think we're going to be getting more of these cases um, I, I would just suggest that
2: you know maybe a little more inquiry and scrutiny on the fact that you know did the tenant actually have notice? It's even more concerning when the tenant doesn't appear, and you're 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 basing this on a default, and it's very hard to determine, um. You know what was the what were they given proper notice, and did they did they actually get the the notice for the hearing? Because the process server came and posted it on the front door. Who knows who picked up that notice? What if there's more people living in the house, more tenants? I mean, you don't know who pulled that off the door. This
0: to me becomes a a significant issue personally. This is the one that
2: I was saying about electronic signatures. I have been seeing more and more leases that now provide that service uh, is done by electronic
0: portal or by email and the question first of all um is this allowed
2: is this a, is this a, is this a valid clause allowed in a in a in a lease agreement because 331314 says that you can't have uh provisions in the lease that are contrary or, or that that where a tenant is giving up a right. And so if the lease provides that the notice is only by electronic portal, are they giving up the
0: right that we just talked about in thirty three, thirteen, thirteen, that notice has to be in hand or by certified mail? No one.
3: I guess an, an, an argument would be that they're not giving up a right. There's a lease provision that actually provides for a better form of notice than the statutory method um, for the reasons that we talked about earlier that um, everyone checks their email. No one goes downtown during the time when the post office is open to pick up the certified mail. Um, so, I. I, I'm I'm trying to think how it would be uh, that lease provision would be contrary to law.
0: I mean that that's a valid point.
2: Um, I, I I I have an apartment called Large Apartment Complex that has been serving them all by electronic portal. I have been I have not been signing the default judgments when the five day notice indicates that it was only served electronically. Um, I've had, I mean, it's funny because the landlord attorney came in and said, no, no, they also gave it to them in hand. And then I'm like, well, I need a witness to tell me that. And then the witness comes in and says, oh no, no, we only deliver them electronically.
0: So yeah. Um, Well, the the portal's a whole different problem.
3: Uh, I I have cases where the portal breaks all the time. You know, they're, they're trying to pay their rent. They can't, the portal's down. They get hit with late fees. They don't think they should have to pay late fees because the portal's broken. Um, I think there's a, a fundamental difference between posting something on them that you can access through a password and a message board. You know that maybe it's the portal. Um, like my, my one of my doctors has a patient portal that I can access if I want to, um, but I have to. It requires affirmative action on my part. That's right. different than them sending you an email. Right. That was
2: that was that was my concern also. That how do you know? But they re, they responded to that by saying that the portal sends management a notification when it's been open, so they can tell which ones have been read and which ones haven't. Do we consider that sufficient?
4: But does it allow, I mean, if it's in, in, if it's extra, it's one extra way of them communicating, I think that's fine, but if that's the only way, I would have problems with that because I don't think that it's allowed just that one way.
2: I I mean, I, I, I take Judge Williams' argument. I think it was a good argument that he made. I, up until now, have not been allowing these. Um, I, I might reconsider, I don't know. Um, I... I, I just still have an issue with this indication that it sends a notification when it has been read. Um, I, I I I don't know.
4: But how do they prove that? Do they have somebody who's going to testify that that?
2: Well, they're going to have to. I would not. That I've been setting all of these. So the so the, the question that becomes this: Can you continue the case to allow plaintiff to present testimony that there was actual notice? Because in these cases, when they argued, they didn't want me to dismiss them. They wanted the the opportunity to present evidence. And that's where this evidence came up, that they got a notification or that the tenant called them after they got the email to talk to them so they know that they had
0: actual notice because they called. Um, So what do we think? Do we allow
2: them to continue it, to give them notice even if it was a default? i think yes um i mean the tenant didn't appear i think you give them you give the landlord the opportunity to you know to prove what is missing i mean i i will hope that at this point they they've learned from from the number of cases that i've reset that they'll stop doing this um just exclusively by electronic but but i think to 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 everyone's point that once you know that that technology has changed and a lot of things changed and what do we do to make sure that we're keeping up with these new ways which to judge williams's point might be better um because clearly the registered mail is not a good way to do it um i i i don't know maybe we we propose a legislative fix
1: well, here's, here's what I would consider is, regardless of how the notice was served, the complaint was served properly, presumably, uh, which then I would put it on the tenant to come in and say, um, the notice was served by email and I never saw it, or served by portal and I never saw it. If the tenant doesn't come in to contest it after being properly served with the complaint and a copy of the notice, um, I would rule um that I, I would find they were served or, or that they, they received the notice.
2: But these notices specifically say that they were delivered electronically. They they mark that box and they don't mark any other box. So I know that they weren't served according to 331313. 13. So I think that I have the obligation to determine that outside of the tenant not appearing. But I I I, I mean
0: I, I get it. I mean, I agree. The tenant didn't come and they didn't, you know. So we have a comment that says just because the judge thinks it's better does
2: not, does not allow us to ignore the statute. That's been my criteria until now. I mean, I have not been allowing these. I've been sending all of these for hearings and this is where I get all this testimony. I know they got it because the portal told me, they called me afterwards to tell me, you know that they were going to pay or they you know all of these things and then that goes back to that subsection a of 1313 right. says actual notice so once i believe they had actual notice i'm fine i think the problem becomes when we don't have any of that additional information but i i i do think this is something we might want to look into for the future um you know if if if, if we're going to stay with these antiquated laws that that require you know, people go to their mailbox every day. Or
0: I, I know that people don't do that anymore. People just don't check their mail as often, uh, and 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 it is an issue.
3: So before we, before we get off notices in general, it, I found that it's important how you ask the question for the tenant if they receive the notice. If you if you say, did you receive this five day notice? and they say yes, I think you have to ask the follow-up question, when? Because they received note, if the note, if the first time they received the notice is when they were served with it was because it was attached to the complaint, then that's not giving them adequate time to, to cure whatever the allegation is. So just as a, as a practice point regardless of what type of case it is and regardless of how the landlord is saying the notice was served, I think it's important if the tenant is there and you can ask them to say, did you receive this? And then say, when did you receive it?
2: The, I think that's an excellent point. I've actually, it's it's hard for me because when you've been doing something for 10 years, to change the way you do it is difficult. But I've been trying now to say the landlord says that they sent you notice on May second that you didn't pay May's rent. You, you know and then do you have anything to say so I, I'm actually adding that into the into when I ask the question so that gives them the opportunity to say I didn't get the notice
0: it wasn't on May 2nd or whatever it may be so yeah that's a that's a really good point um, so we've got we've gotten some questions
2: on this issue of 60 day notices to vacate and month- to month fees.
0: Um, so what you normally see in a lease, and this is this is
2: copied from a lease agreement. This is the language that is in nowadays, I would say in most lease agreements, at least the 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 multifamily uh, association complexes use these leases with this language that says that the resident must deliver a vacate notice 60 days before the lease terminates and if they don't the lease will continue month to month you know with the same lease the same terms of the lease and then usually we'll have a rent increase included um it used to be a hundred dollar month-to-month fee i'm sure that the hundred dollars is way antiquated at this point uh those numbers are more close to 300 or 400 dollars um, and and that that month-to-month fee will continue um, until somebody gives the 60-day notice to terminate the lease. Um, or there is this the, the what they call the holding-over clause that if they stay past the move-out date, um, the lease continues valid on a month-to-month. And so this clause makes it that the lease that terminated continues on a month to month basis. And then those are the ones that usually state that they will the that, that there would be an automatic rent increase. I've seen some leases that have some staggered amounts. If you renew the lease for 3 months the rent will go up $300 if you renew it for six months it'll go up two hundred dollars if you renew it for one year it'll go up one hundred dollars you know giving people incentives to renew their leases uh but having all of these uh lease uh or the the rent decreases uh when the lease goes month to month i mean i will bet that most tenants do not know that they have to give 60 day notice and that is where all our problems all our problems come in Um, so for example, what if the tenant moved out at the end of the lease, can the landlord still collect those 60 days rent? Is that a penalty or do they still have a duty to mitigate? So what I mean by the duty to mitigate, if they rented that property, is that tenant still responsible for those 60 days
0: of rent? Because this is a penalty and not rent. Any thoughts? I had someone come to court the other day that they were moving out, they were
2: packing and moving out. Um, And when they went to return the keys, they were told that, or they went to schedule a walkthrough or something. And they were told that, no, that they can't move out, that they needed to pay 60 days of rent because they hadn't given the 60 day notice um and so they went ahead and left their things in the house because they
0: were told that they couldn't move out and then they got hit with a non-payment of rent um and so they were very confused as to what that 60-day notice meant and
2: you know how they were and how they were obligated to stay 60
0: days even if they were ready to move out Anything? No one has any opinions on
2: this.
3: I think a landlord always has a duty to mitigate damages.
2: So, you, but you think that that 60 days rent is not a penalty? It's just uh, so if they re-rented, the, the 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 tenant doesn't have to pay the full 60 days.
3: Well, if if they re-rented if they re-rented the property, I think the definite the tenant definitely doesn't the outgoing tenant definitely doesn't have to pay. Yeah.
2: Um, yeah, that's what I told.
3: It's awful, it's awful close to a lease break fee, um, which which we have a best practice that says you can't charge. Um, but yeah, uh, uh, it, it, it essentially provides for automatic renewal of the lease with slightly different terms.
2: The I the, I told these folks I said get your things out of there and move you're doing yourself no favor by staying there
4: yeah i've had the same thing it made I mean,
2: no sense
4: yeah i mean they, they they keep this stuff in there and i said as long as you have possession of it unless you give that take out your stuff and give them you know the key there's nothing we can do and give them that month but yeah then it becomes a civil matter after that you just give them to that end of the month but if they had left then they wouldn't have done, had a eviction it would just have been a civil matter.
2: Well, I think the problem is if they had, they, if they leave, they delivered the key. I think the problem here was that the landlord didn't want to receive the key because they said they weren't allowed to break the lease because they hadn't given the 60-day notice, which really but turns into a t- problem for the, who have no, they have no clue as to what the law really says and what their rights no. are. And they were like, okay, they told us we can't move. So we left our stuff in there. It's, it's,
0: it,
4: uh, you know. Can the landlord not legally, if they give them the key, not accept it? I guess they cannot accept it, but they've given it to them. I don't know, Charlie?
2: No, well, no, right. I agree. I think that these people just didn't know. They went to talk about it and they told them you can't leave and they just assumed that they couldn't. You know, they, they believe or they understand what they think they, they, they were told and, and, and that's what happens. Um, this is one that I saw. This didn't happen to me, but but I but I have heard this question. The, the tenant says that they told them that they were moving out, but the landlord said they didn't fill out the correct form.
0: That they needed to use the vacate notice form that they have at the front office. Um, I, I think we talked about this before. Do they need to use a specific form? You know,
2: probably not. Um, I think the tenant would probably have to show how they deliver the notice. and The landlord actually did get the notice. Uh, but I would not be inclined to say they had to use a specific form. Um, I do think that because they didn't use the form the landlord's gonna say they didn't get the notice.
3: Yeah, especially since the landlord has actual notice uh, on right. on your fact pattern. The other one is, what I was gonna say in response to the other question is, presumably on the first page of the lease, there is something that says term of the lease that has you know blanks that are filled in because the lease expires on this date. And then maybe in paragraph 175, it says it automatically renews itself. Um, contracts, I mean, a basic principle of contract law is contracts are construed against the drafter. So if there's an ambiguity um, in when the lease expires, I think uh, you can make an argument, or someone can make an argument that that should be construed against the landlord, because the landlord wrote the lease, presumably the tenant didn't have any input into the language at all on the lease. So if the if page one, of the lease says the lease expires December 31st and page eight of the lease says, oh, by the way, it can be automatically renewed. That's arguably an ambiguity.
0: That's a great point. Um,
2: and then. If the lease goes month to month after the 60-day notice then can you give a 30-day notice in the in the previous example what I the, the, the language that I copied from the lease it says that once it, it got extended because you didn't give the 60-day notice you still have to give a
0: 60-day notice um, but um, but on the other hand all month-to-month leases can be by, by statute
2: right terminated with a 30-day notice so i think again this creates another issue um and maybe to, to judge williams's point that you you know the ambiguity ambiguity goes against the, the the landlord um and then this is the typical response right the tenant never understood that they needed to give a 60-day notice they never understood. They signed a lease that it was going to end a year from now. They moved out a year from now. They never understood that they had uh, that they had to give the notice. Um I do think that unfortunately when you sign a lease, you might be subject to to the provisions of of the contract, even if you didn't read it. Uh, but but I, I guess that that's still that argument that, that Gerald just said might might still uh,
0: be considered. um question question what would they do if at the beginning when they signed the lease
4: they told the landlord that they were only going to be there for a year
2: i mean i think the thing is the same as what happens with everything when they say they have something in verbal agreement that's sub different from what was said in writing i mean that's always the issue right we get that all the time he told me that i could pay on the third because he knew that i didn't get my social security until the third and then the one month that they were fed up with them they're like okay you didn't pay on the first now you're getting a five-day notice i mean it's just always that kind of thing right all right well, this was you right judge williams
3: it, it was um some of us can remember when we used to do residential eviction actions after a trustee sale. Um, And oddly, that this wasn't uniform around the state. Uh, Almost all the JPs in Maricopa County thought they had this authority based in part on the title of this uh, statute of 1211 73.01 a that's that the title of it is additional definition of forcible detainer. So all of us thought um, we, we had the authority to do evictions after trustee sale, and we've done them for years. Um, I, I wrote an article, part of which said, yes, we think we do have this authority. Um, it was litigated, uh, again, a couple of years ago. And, uh, it's now pretty clear from the Arizona court of appeals that we don't have this authority. Um, the, the slide makes a. A site to a a Westlaw, uh, WLS Westlaw. Um, it, there's actually a, a an opinion in Pacific Third now. The the site to this case is four six six Pacific Third on page
2: eight hundred and seventy four. If you want to look it up, but yeah, uh,
0: sorry,
2: I just copy and pasted. I didn't. I wasn't even no, looking. That's, at that that's story. that's okay. When, <laughs> whenever I
3: whenever I whenever this was done, that there probably wasn't a a specific uh, third site available yet. And Westlaw was probably the only thing that had it. But uh, part of that case says that the statute uh, governing additional definition of forcible detainer actions did not grant justice courts subject matter jurisdiction over post uh, trustee forcible detainer actions. And thus residents did not waive any defenses and objections to the uh, sale a property at a trustee sale by failing to attain an injunction preventing the sale and failing to raise that issue in justice courts. The the old rule was, hey, you know, if if you think your trustee sale was improper and the property, the new property owner brings in a facially valid trustees deed, that ends the analysis and a JP just determines possession. that's not the law anymore. And it, it's clear that we should not be, be hearing these cases anymore. The the next slide points out some very important points. Um, trustee sales weren't the only thing in this statute. There's all kinds of varieties of, of post real estate sale possession actions. Um, and although none of these have been litigated, or at least I couldn't find any reported case law on any of these other types. Um, Under the same analysis, we shouldn't be hearing these types of cases either. Um, My rule is is fairly simple. Um, If one side is is alleging anything about title to property, I don't want to hear the case. Um, I I think it, it needs to be transferred to Superior Court. We clearly have no jurisdiction to decide uh, ownership of real property. And so if the the defendant is coming in and saying, but your honor, this really wasn't a lease, this was a, a, a purchase contract with an option to buy and see here's the document and it uses words like, it doesn't use words like landlord and tenant, it uses words like buyer and purchaser. and I'm like look this looks this looks uh, maybe you thought it was a lease but it looks like a real estate purchase contract i don't have the authority to hear this case so i i transfer that to superior court and i think that that's the the better practice i don't think i don't think jp should get near title the real estate issues um this, i thought uh judge reagan turned his camera on for a second um but uh, I don't know. Does anyone have any additional thoughts on trustee sales? Maybe you're just happy that we don't have to hear the cases anymore.
2: Well, I mean, I had one the other day was a sheriff sale, so that's where it yeah. that came from. So once in a while, we still get them, and and um, and, and, and that led me to look into this. And, and and there's just a lot of, like you said, a lot of other cases that we should be using that same girlish analysis on. All right. So, what constitutes a defense? Uh, was this? I don't remember who this was. You or me?
3: <laughs> I, I think it was you, but either one of us. Okay. Case. Um. But uh, w- when I ask, um, I'll say something. Like, your landlord's alleging you haven't paid your rent for June. Is that correct? And and they say yes. And I'll say why. And I'm listening for anything that sounds like a defense. Um my landlord is a jerk or financial hardship um, are not defenses. But if they say something like, well, you know, it's been really hard since the landlord cut off my power, then all of a sudden you have an issue. And there are obviously legal defenses too. Um, You know, judge, I didn't know anything about this case. I was never served with anything. Um, I happened to Google myself today and I saw my name was on the court calendar. And I'm just here because I, I I saw my name in Google, you know that would be a, a procedural defense, um, but the the court has to determine whether or not um, the, the tenant has a colorable claim, and if they do, if the tennis is disputing anything, you've got to set it for a trial. At that point, it says the court shall order a trial. You can't just say, well, you know, I I trust this person over that you actually have to hear evidence you have to swear witnesses and and have a trial and we have a best practice that says the trial has should look like a trial it shouldn't be just a discussion at the bench at that point or it shouldn't be just a discussion online uh, we should have opening statements we should have witnesses we should have cross examination we should have closing arguments that should look look like a trial looks like um,
2: and 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 no one says you need to go fishing around for a defense. You know, you're not going to create the defense for the tenant, but it does say that you need to determine if there is one. So this does not allow the judge to be passive and just wait for the tenant to, to to say the the right words. You know, you need to ask the questions, as Judge Williams said. Um, the, the 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 this rule I anticipate will be changed. Because it does say that you need to advise the tenant um, that if if you request a written answer, if you're setting it for trial, that they can request a waiver of the fee. The bill was recently signed, uh, eliminating all answer fees in eviction actions. So I assume that that's going to go away,
0: it's not going to be an issue anymore. And then that answers can be oral they do not
2: have to be uh, they don't have to be written and the if if you require them to file a written answer then you can require them to file a written answer after the initial appearance but you can't not
0: consider a defense because it wasn't in writing I'm sorry. I think this is all you, right? I don't know.
3: <laughs> okay. Uh, if the, obviously, if there's a if there's a procedural defect, um, then then you can't hear the case. If, if the notice is, is, is so vague that they don't know what the case is about, um, the the handwritten five-day notice would be would be earlier would be one. Um, they have to um, say. It, it's just basic due process that the tenant has to be on notice and have a meaningful opportunity to respond um if the uh, you have to say you know what went wrong the uh, I had a, an immediate notice that I set for trial um and it it, it was kind of dicey if the notice was even adequate because it just said, we, sell, we smelled we smell drugs coming from the residents. And I'm like, Well, you can have drugs and, <laughs> depending on what the drug is now, with, with recreational marijuana being fine. Um, unless there's some kind of clause in the lease. And say, Oh no, no, this was this was the kind of drugs that uh, this was a different kind of drugs that wasn't marijuana. And I'm like, Well, I don't I don't know what drugs other than marijuana smell like. But that was that was really dicey on if, if that notice was even adequate. To, to proceed, but um, I went ahead and set the case for the trial, the tenants appeared remotely and were adamant that they weren't uh, cooking meth or, or anything else, um, so we'll see how that trial goes. But the, you have to tell what the tenant they did wrong. You just can't say, well, you know, you were uh, disruptive uh, sometime in May. You know, that that doesn't work, it, it, that's not fair. The, the tenant right. has to have adequate notice
0: and
2: an opportunity to respond so they can prepare a defense. So additional defenses to, to any eviction action would be that they did not commit the violation. And I think this was this was the topic that I, I, I left for Judge Williams that we wanted to talk about what constitutes material breach. So you get a notice that says you need to fix this within 10 days because this constitutes material breach of the lease?
4: Well, there's actually a
3: a pretty good definition of material breach in the the jury instructions on on contract law, but it it needs to be something that that goes to the core of the the, the lease, the core of the landlord-tenant relationship. I'm, I'm trying to think of a, a, a good example. If the say the the lease says you can have four four potted plants on your patio, and you have five, and you have to cure that within ten days, and you cure that on day eleven, um, that hopefully no one would find would be a material breach of the lease, warning, eviction.
2: I I had a case I had a case where one I mean there were lots of things listed on it but one of them was that they had put um, blankets over the windows instead of um, instead of curtains
0: and they wanted that to constitute a material breach. you know does, does that does that go to the to the heart of the lease you know to, to be to consider because you didn't have the right kind of curtains up.
2: Other defenses are that the landlord accepted payment of rent after having given the notice. Hold uh, on, these are yours. Retaliation unlawful ouster
0: may also be uh, defenses and then the diminution of fair rental value.
3: The, you
0: wanted the, to talk about okay,
3: yeah. The, a tenant will never come in and say, um, "I want to file a counterclaim for diminished value." Um, they they don't know that vocabulary, uh, or most of them don't, and that's why you have to sort of be on on uh, alert uh, to maybe you need to set some of these things for for trial. And there's not very good guidance on um uh, a diminished fair market value for uh, a two-bedroom apartment that has two bathrooms only one of which is working um so there's the the tenant is paying for two bathrooms they're only getting one bathroom now they have all these issues getting ready in the morning is that a, a diminished value and the landlord has to willfully um cause that problem but that's something where uh you, you can potentially set it for trial um we'll, we'll talk about a, a, a counterclaim issue in a, in a minute to where you can um a, a tenant has a, a method to do undisputed rent into the court but we we do have uh, sample letters on our webpage on the maricopa county george court webpage for for a tenant to use for a minor defect, like maybe a dripping faucet or a broken window, and then another one for an essential service that um, the best example right now would be air conditioning. I I think everyone would would agree, air conditioning is an essential service right now. So if if the landlord is intentionally doing something, then the, the tenant can recover up to two months rent or twice their actual damages. And an example of actual damages would be if they cut off the power and the tenant had a a freezer full of food and it all spoiled, um, and I actually have had that situation, uh, then you'd be entitled to to twice your, potentially your actual damages if if what you had in the freezer was worth more than uh, two months rent. Now with rent going up, maybe the two months rent is always going to be more than whatever you had in your freezer.
0: I think
2: we're running really late. I don't know if you wanted just to scramble through this or what you want us to do, Charles.
1: Yeah, just just pick up the pace and, and let's hold our questions or comments to the end. I wish we'd had, had some, we didn't get any mostly.
2: <laughs> so the abuse of access, is that a defense? So the, the, the statute says that the landlord may not abuse unless there's emergency or it is impracticable. They have to give the tenant two day notice before they enter the residence the tenant can recover actual damages i don't know what actual damage of someone coming in might be but um but never less than an amount equal to one month of rent for every time the landlord abuses access i have a trial of this uh tomorrow that they said that they just walked in so that'll be interesting to hear um the but then on the other hand the tenant can't refuse the landlord entrance to the residence if it's reasonable um, the i would say that probably if the tenant refuses access then the landlord would have to give them a notice that they refused access uh, and then terminate the lease i don't think that they could terminate the lease just on the fact that they gave a two-day notice and they weren't able to come in um, but but they they, they, the the tenant does have the obligation to let them in um okay the counterclaim okay first
3: if if the tenant has taken the time to file a counterclaim at a minimum that's a red flag that the judge should seriously consider setting that case for a trial because there's there's probably something in dispute um counterclaims have to be based on the lease um And a tenant could have some type of tort claim against their landlord, but those generally can't be heard as a counterclaim in an eviction action. They'd have to be a separate lawsuit. So, what do you do when the tenant admits that they owe some amount of, of rent that's requested, but they're disputing part of the other rent or part of the other charges? They're willing to pay the undisputed amount, but the landlord won't accept it because the landlord doesn't want to accept a partial payment. Well, there's this sort of quirky statute 33 1365 that allows a tenant to pay the undisputed amount into the court as a bond um, or your your court clerks will call it a litigant deposit that way if the tenant wins um, the bond is dispersed to the landlord the tenant doesn't have a judgment against them and the lease just continues Um, if you don't have this safeguard then a tenant could end up with a judgment against them for an amount they agreed they owed and had attempted to pay. So this is a a really useful trick. Um, Unfortunately, the statute talks about it in terms of a counterclaim. Um, I, I know of one former judge that used this a lot and would allow it to come in as an offset, not necessarily a counterclaim. But when the tenant is saying, hey, I've got this much rent, I've got it right now. I'm willing to pay it I'm just disputing this other charge because I don't think it's valid. Um, You can have them pay the amount that amount into the the court, um, whether you call it a a counterclaim or not. Um, And if because the both sides agree that that is money that's owed, the you don't have a situation where the tenant wins your argument, but still loses the case because they have a judgment against them. Just on real quick on partial payments in general, Uh, a landlord's not required to accept a partial payment, but if the landlord does, then the landlord can't um, file an eviction action for non-payment of rent for the balance during that same month. There is an exception if there's a partial payment waiver. Um, If the landlord accepts a partial payment, that doesn't mean the landlord cannot file an action forever. It just means they can't find one file one during that month. Um, There can be promised. Problems if the tenant attempts to make an automatic partial payment um, through uh, the landlord to set up something where the tenant can deposit rent into their their checking account or savings account. Um, the example in the statute is a government housing assistance payment, like a Section Eight payment, that comes in automatically. Those are no longer considered partial payments, um, and there are some other issues on partial payments. On implied warranty of habitability, uh, the landlord has to have an opportunity to repair even a latent defect. Like I, I mentioned earlier, we have the sample letters on our webpage for tenants. There's also stuff uh, AZ um, AZ law um, to where the, the tenant has sample notices for their landlord. But every now and then you'll hear uh, someone say, well, your honor, the landlord violated the implied warranty of habitability. There's not one in Arizona. Some states have an implied warranty of habitability, but in Arizona, even though the landlord has an absolute duty to provide a habitable residence, the if there's a problem with the residence, the landlord has to be able to fix it before they're liable uh, for not fixing it or, or for some type of defect. So like I said earlier, the landlord has to have an opportunity even to repair a latent defect Um, Oddly, there's almost nothing on this case. It's a case from 1981, Uh, it's still good law. It's just has never been cited for anything um, other than in an article I wrote in in 2011. So maybe someone needs to write another article on this issue. Um, uh, And I think who can sue is is back at you, Judge Huberman.
2: These are just two quick examples. This was one of a tenant who held the lease. Uh, He died. The son asked the landlord if he could stay in the property. He paid two months and then stopped paying. The landlord wanted to sue the estate. Correct party to sue? I would think not. I think that the son created a new landlord-tenant relationship um, on his own uh, because he was not on the original lease. And the landlord should uh, have filed against the son. And then this case number two was also a tenant who died, um, but they there was an, another occupant in the property, and they named the estate of this deceased tenant and the occupant in the in the in the complaint, and they wanted rent and willful holdover fees. And my argument was, if you want to file against the unauthorized occupant, because they kept saying, well, they, they breached the lease because they were an, an unauthorized occupant. I'm like, first of all, you sent a notice for not payment of rent, not a notice for unauthorized occupant. But even so, then that, that you can't, if there'll be unauthorized occupant, they are not the person that you file the claim against. And if you wanted to file a claim against the occupant, then you do it as a general eviction title 12 um and not and not a, a landlord tenant it was all very confusing in the end i allowed them to keep the complaint against the estate for not payment of rent but they had to remove the name of the um of the occupant who was not part of the who was not part of the of the original lease um, and then i'll just we can stop here with the post judgment issues uh, just uh, timing of no motions to set aside a vacate uh, just be sure that if you're there are they're filing a motion within the five days uh, before the rate issues those have to be resolved before the five days are up. they have to be considered an emergency matter because you know you can't sit on that and then issue the writ and then rule on the motion to vacate um, but if it doesn't affect the possession then that's not a problem um, there has to be uh, facts that if proven a trial would be a meritorious defense. And this could be from all the facts that's set forth in the affidavit. Um, and then the bonds for appeals. I'll just leave that for you to read on your own. And if you have any questions on appeals, you can you can get, come back to us. And again, you wanted to we could.
3: Well, just real quick on there, there's some confusion on how to do a supersedious bond, the, the type that stops a writ uh, from being issued. Um, and the, the language is, is a little confusing. The, the statute 121179D um, says to file a bond in the amount of rent accruing from the day of the judgment until the next rental day. Um, the eviction rules uh, 17B2 says the bond um, is to be in the amount of any rent due apart from the amounts included in the judgment. That that language is not really all that clear. This is the one time that rent is prorated. So just as a quick example, if the rent is $1,500 per month, that so works out to $50 a day on the 30 day month, and the judgment was signed on the 13th of the month, then the bond is for 17 days rent, which would be $850 there's a bond calculator in our O drive that your court clerks will know to how to access that will always get it right. Um, so uh, I had one judge uh, ask me lots of questions about supersedious bonds um, about a week ago, but the, it, I, if, you I think the cal- if you follow the bond calculator in the O drive, you'll get it right. That's
2: right. I mean, I think this goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning of what why the full amount of rent is owed and you add the full amount into the judgment but then in order to stay uh in the property and you want to pay the supersedious bond you have to pay all the rent that is due from that judgment forward and so even though that rent was included in the judgment it's still part of that supersedious bond which is why everybody gets confused and why it sounds. Uh, Then it can't be right, but that's what the rules say, and that's how we do it. And I agree, you follow the calculator, and it works. And and, and by
1: the way, we're going till four, so we don't need to move that quickly. Uh, Oh. And and if you want to back up to the. uh, I
2: thought I thought we it was an hour and a half.
0: Oh, sorry.
1: (laughs) One point seven five. We're going to four. The um, supersedious bond uh keep in mind they they don't have to pay the supersedious bond on the judgment um, to stay they have to pay the supersedious bond for the rent to stay so they're not double paying the rent if they don't care if the judgment money judgment is being enforced the other crazy thing about the statute is that is the same bond uh for any other type of eviction so even an immediate eviction which has nothing to do with non-payment of rent the the bond to stay in the premises is paying rent for the rest of the month and then every month thereafter
0: yeah that's
2: uh you know i i have a case on appeal right now that the guy's a hoarder and he just had tons and tons of stuff in the house and he didn't have a problem paying the rent it's not a problem of payment and he appealed and he's going to stay there while that appeal is pending. Um. And, they, and the worst of it is, at first, they, they gave him a notice to clean, and he tried to clean. But now that he's on the appeal, they can't give him another notice. He still gets to stay without having to clean. So it's like a catch-22, right? It's.
1: Uh, I, I think they could give him a new notice, and they could file a new eviction action for yeah, a new breach.
2: I, I, I thought about that. I don't know. I I don't know. Because I think it's the same breach. It's not a new one it's really the same one he just really never cleaned so I don't I it's an interesting I mean I I agree that he has a right to appeal and I could have gotten it wrong you know I'm not saying that I just realize that it creates a tricky situation uh, for landlords to have to allow these people to stay
1: okay Uh, and I'm sorry Taj just corrected me take a break Um, and it is 1.75 hours so we are we are now concluding, uh, unless oh. we have any questions or any closing thoughts?
3: the The only additional closing thought I would have is, and and a lot of this stuff is is overcome by events now because we don't have all the eviction moratoriums. We don't have all the administrative uh, orders coming at us. But I, it, it's tempting when we're talking among ourselves to say, wow, I think this law is unfair, or wow, I think this provision is unfair. Um, it's arguably inappropriate to do that in the courtroom. Um, you, you you wouldn't, um, I, I often the tenant is, is more sympathetic than the landlord for a variety of reasons. And when we would, uh, you, you wanna be nice to the tenant and you wanna make sure that they feel that they're getting their, their voice heard in their day in court. But it's not, I, I would argue it's inappropriate to come back and say, well, you know, the landlord laws just don't like tenants, you know, or, or something like that. Um, uh, just to put it in, we wouldn't do that in the criminal case. You know, you, you wouldn't be taking a, a DUI plea and say, you know, something like, you know, well, I think drunk drivers should serve at least 10 days in jail, but our, you know, our legislator and a county attorney are just such wimps, you know, that they don't care. Um, you, you wouldn't say that in the criminal case. so. I, I'm recommending that you don't say anything similar in a in a civil case. It's, it's it's okay to have those thoughts. You just can't say them.
0: All right, and Paul, you turned on your camera.
1: Oh, I am always so impressed with the work that you guys do, guys and gals. Thank you for the effort to prepare for this and present it. I learned some good things.
0: All right. Thank you,
1: everyone. Uh, and the COJET certificate is the last page of the packet. Uh, this should be posted to YouTube and as a podcast if everything works well. Thanks. Well, Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you.